0: It's a book that sold over a 100 million copies and is printed in over 52 different languages. It is the fastest selling paperback of all time. It was the first book to sell more than a million copies on Amazon Kindle. In fact, it's of such popularity, one hotel owner in Europe made a decision to exchange this book with all the complimentary Bibles that were previously in each of the hotel rooms. Because of its success, the author has been named one of the 100 most influential people in the world. The book I'm talking about is Fifty Shades of Gray a dark and degrading story filled with abusive and perverted sexual intimacy. In fact, the obsessions of the main character in this story stem from his own molestation as a child. The movie is going to be released in next week on Valentine's Day. And I would uh, encourage you to stay far, far away. Because it is a sad, sad day in our history that we would have any thought of looking at a story like this As having anything to do with love. Because that could not be farther from the truth. And it's because of examples like this. That we need perhaps now more than ever. A balanced and biblical perspective. Of the view of sexual intimacy according to God's design. And and we need to be careful as Christians because. Our tendency a lot of times is to to swing that pendulum way too far in the opposite direction. So Paul this morning is going to give us a balanced perspective, a a biblical perspective that neither glorifies or degrades sexual intimacy. It exalts the beauty of, of God's design of marriage while also placing great value, importance, and in goodness of what it means to be single. In fact, these he sees as gifts of equal value and importance within God's design. See, marriage and sexual intimacy are intended to go together as is being single and being abstinent. And what God has joined together, what He has designed, may we do nothing to separate. We need to protect The goodness built into that design. As we look at our passage this morning, I really do believe there's something for all of us, regardless of what stage or season of life that you're in, because we're going to learn from Paul's perspective what it means to have a God-honoring love, whether you're single or married. And so let's be prayerful that that's the heart of the message that we hear when we look at his word together. So let's pray together. Father, as we come to your word, um, speaking to such an important reality uh, in our world today, give us clarity. Uh, This topic is so perverted, so abused, so misleading within our world today that uh, it can be confusing. We pray that your word um, dispels that confusion, exalts your design. Gives praise to your glory and goodness for what you've created us for. Both in being married and in being single. Both fulfilling And gifts from your hand. Help us to see that this morning as we look at your word together. We pray this in your name. Amen. Turn, if you will, to 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 1. If you will, begin reading with me there in verse 1. Chapter 7, verse 1. Paul says, now concerning the things about which you wrote, it is good for a man not to touch a woman. But because of immoralities, let each man have his own wife and let each woman have her own husband. Last week, I told you that chapter 7 is a transition in Paul's letter to the Corinthians. We know that because of what he says there beginning at the first part of verse 1. Now concerning the things about which you wrote. Paul is addressing things that the Corinthians had written to him about. But as we'll see from Paul's response, the Corinthians really weren't asking for Paul's opinion. (laughs) They were more wanting his validation of their opinion. And so what you'll see as you look at Paul's response is that he's not answering their questions. Instead, what he's doing is questioning their answers. And the real key to understanding this entire passage is how you see the second half of verse 1, where it says, It is good for a man not to touch a woman. The question here is, is this Paul's own opinion that he's then going to validate, or is it the opinion of the Corinthians that he is then restating and hoping to correct? I believe it's the latter, and let me give you a few reasons why that's the case. Let me clarify to begin with that this idea of a man not touching a woman is a euphemism for sexual intimacy, and so Paul is going to speak to that, and what they're saying essentially is that it's not good for a man to be sexually involved with a woman. Now, if that was Paul's statement, then he's going to contradict his own opinion. Because he will later talk about the goodness within God's design of marriage. The other reason that I don't believe that this is Paul's opinion, but an opinion of the Corinthians, is because it's way too broad. Basically, what they're saying is it's never good. And when it happens, it's like a necessary evil. And it's too narrow, because you'll notice it's from the man's perspective only. It's not good for a man to touch a woman. As we see from Paul's response, he never takes a one-sided view. It's always seen from both perspectives. And so this defies what Paul was going to speak to. The other reason that I believe this is not Paul's opinion, but an opinion of the Corinthians that he will then correct is because we see this pattern repeated at least four other times in the remainder of the letter, where he speaks to something that they wrote about, again, their opinion, hoping he would validate that he then goes on to correct. And I believe that's what we see in our passage this morning. And so for that reason, I think it should be read like this. You say it's not good for any man to touch any woman. I say, let each have his own wife, let each man have his own wife, and let each woman have her own husband. Like I said, did you notice the shared responsibility there? It's not one perspective only. Paul wants to be clear. Immorality is a sin. And for that reason, we need to understand what God's design is so that we can live within that design. He's going to give us a a biblical balance to this issue, and I believe in doing so, correct the, the, the wrong information that the Corinthians have concluded themselves. On one hand, he will speak to the fact that Sexual intimacy is not just an appetite, like when you're hungry, you you feed it. But on the other hand, it's not an evil from which everyone should abstain. Instead, there's a balance. Paul hopes to redeem the beauty of God's design. Marriage and intimacy belong together. Being single and being celibate belong together. They are both gifts of God. Of equal value and importance. And what God has joined together. Let no one separate. Now look at verse 3. It says. Let the husband fulfill his duty to his wife. And likewise also the wife to her husband. The wife does not have authority over her own body. But the husband does. And likewise the husband does not have authority over his own body. But the wife does. So stop depriving one another. Except by agreement for a time that you may devote yourselves to prayer and come together again, lest Satan tempt you because of your lack of self-control. Sexual intimacy is necessary and important within a God-honoring marriage. Notice again in verse 3 how Paul speaks to the mutual responsibility, the shared responsibility between a husband and a wife. And That's really important for us to capture. One of the reasons is is because in this culture, during this time, it was a man-dominated society. And so what was normal and expected within that society is that when two people were married, the man had possession over his wife. She was like, like one of his possessions. He owned her. And Paul is saying against the grain of culture, that absolutely is not true. A man and a woman in marriage have equal value in God's sight. And they share an equal responsibility within the context of marriage. And so that duty that they have to one another is not some some burdensome idea. Not an obligation of, I'll do it, but I really don't want to. Now what he's talking about here is how a husband and wife willingly give themselves for the good of the other. Because sexual intimacy is a divine blessing intended to strengthen that bond of marriage that God created. And it is specific to marriage because marriage is uniquely built upon the premise of a covenant love. Now, you have all kinds of relationships in your life, relationships within your family, with your friends, But they're separate and apart from this idea of a covenant love of marriage. They're more like a contract. You're friends with certain people if certain conditions are met. Whether we want to admit it or not, it's true. (laughs) Maybe a certain popularity. Maybe a certain uh, wealth or status in the community. Maybe a certain neighborhood that they live in. There's conditions. Maybe they treat you in a certain way or certain expectations that you have of them. And if they don't meet those expectations, contract's null and void. You just move on and you don't have to be friends with them. Right? That's the way those relationships work, but it's not the way the relationship of marriage is made. In fact, marriage is a covenant relationship. So instead of adding conditions in, it removes them. Just think about the vows that you make on your wedding day. What does it say? For better, for worse. Sickness and in health. Richer or for poor. Basically what it's saying, wherever we are on the spectrum of possibilities, my love for you is not conditioned upon any single one of them. Because I am committing myself to you unconditionally. It's a covenant love. And sexual intimacy within a marriage is a reaffirmation of the fact that I belong completely, exclusively, and permanently to you. This may seem like a, a stretch, but I want you to hear me out. Last week, uh, we celebrated communion. And we do that once a month. And more recently, I've made a statement about how communion is really a covenant renewal ceremony, right? And I say that because we are looking at and being grateful for a covenant love where God has displayed that love for us through the person and work of His Son, Jesus Christ, who sacrificed His life, shed His blood for the forgiveness of our sins. And when we put our trust and faith in Him, that love now becomes unconditional. He will never leave you. He will never forsake you. And the reason we come with gratitude to the table is because our hearts should be filled with a desire to be devoted to him because of his great love for us. It's a covenant renewal. I believe that sexual intimacy has the same high value in marriage. It's covenant renewal. Just like we do at the Lord's table, we're telling that person, I belong completely, exclusively, and permanently to you. Look at verse 4. It says, the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. And likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Again, see the shared responsibility to relinquish Control. And I want you to know that this is not weak and passive. This is bold, committed. In fact, this is the same love that you see evidence within the Trinity itself. Right? Where Jesus says that I don't do things on my own accord. I don't do things independent from the Father. I always submit my will to His. It's the same love that, that Jesus displayed for us. He said, greater love has no man than he who lays down his life for his friend, for those he loves. You see, this idea of relinquishing authority is a self-sacrificing love. And intimacy in marriage is a reflection of that kind of love. It's a place of ultimate Vulnerability involving every aspect of our being. Remember, we talked about that list last week. Not just physically, but emotionally, psychologically, spiritually. Where the primary concern is what you're giving, not what you're getting. That's a very difficult concept within our world today. Because it is so saturated with sexuality. It's all about performance, adventure, creativity, as if those are the ingredients for a fulfilling love. But I want you to listen to the enemy's deception, okay? Listen to this. Intimacy is better when it's out of bounds. You see, by restricting it to marriage, God is withholding something good from you. Do you hear it? It's the garden all over again. He's trying to convince you that that limitation is withholding you. When in fact, it's protecting you. It's promoting his highest good. But the enemy seeks to deceive you. And he'll tell you, well, it's okay if you love them. There is nothing loving about leading someone away from the beauty of Of God's design. In fact, I think it's one of the most selfish and unloving things that you could do. God gave the conditions upon which you demonstrate the integrity of your love, and it's called marriage between one man and one woman for a lifetime. See, true love is proven. When you forfeit your freedom to to hold on to all your options and you make an unconditional commitment to belong completely, exclusively, and permanently to one person with no conditions attached for a lifetime. That's a sacred, meaningful love. True love relinquishes control. It lays down its life for the good of the other. And there is no more fulfilling goodness than that which you find built within God's design. That's why he says in verse 5, Stop depriving one another except by agreement for a time that you may devote yourselves to prayer. Come together again lest Satan tempt you because of your lack of self-control. He is speaking to the misguided idea of the Corinthians that it's bad and should be uh, uh, neglected and, and ignored. Stop depriving one another. And notice again, it's husband and wife. You bear a shared responsibility. That word deprive is a strong word, it means rob or steal or defraud. And what he's saying here is intimacy is not a weapon. We're, Any one person has the right to to selfishly withhold from the other. Instead, intimacy really is ultimately a test. It tests the integrity of your relationship. Because struggles with intimacy often reveal or become symptoms of a much deeper issue, a much bigger problem. Issues like guilt or anger or mistrust. Or unresolved conflict. If these exist, intimacy suffers. It's as if God kind of built a, a warning light into our marriage relationship to tell us something's not right. Think of it like driving your car. You're going down the road, that oil pressure gauge turns red, goes, goes off. It, it's telling you something's not right with what's going on in the engine. And If you continue to drive and that friction is allowed, it will cause the engine to fail. It's a reality. That warning light's telling you, stop. Don't keep driving. You're going to ruin it. And I believe intimacy in a marriage can do the same thing. It can be a warning light. Because if something's not right there, there's always something that's hidden underneath that you need to take a look at, which is why he gives the very clear instruction for abstaining within the context of marriage. He says three things. Mutual agreement, he said it at least four times, hasn't he? It's a shared responsibility. So this idea of reasoning for abstaining is when you both agree. Mutual agreement. The second thing is a limited time. The third is for the purpose of prayer. One possible reason to abstain might be to to look at what is going on beneath this issue that may be exposed. Maybe the warning light's gone off and you need to do some maintenance on your marriage. So spend some time praying together, seeking the Lord with one another. Paul's conditions also speak to the importance of prayer. He says in the absence of Sexual intimacy within marriage Make sure that you are mutually agreeing to come together in prayer for one another. It's as if that prayer helps hold the bond during that interim of time. Notice he didn't say, stop for a while, go find yourselves, and when you're good with that, come back together. It says, no, never leave each other. Always stay together. And prayer helps hold the integrity of that marriage relationship, which is the reason that many times when people come to me and are dealing with issues in their marriage, the very first question I ask is, are you praying together? Are you spending time before the Lord with and for one another? Because that's where you got to begin. And in fact, it should never end. It should be a key attribute of any healthy, God-honoring marriage. The other thing I want you to notice is that Paul basically is implying that intimacy in marriage is what protects us against immorality within that context of marriage. It's not willpower. It's not self-control or self-discipline. It's faithfulness. Faithfulness to live within accordance of God's design protects us from the attraction of living outside of that. Being satisfied with God's goodness makes us less inclined to go outside of it for something else. But look at how he continues, because now after speaking to this issue of the marriage relationship, he now speaks to the issue of being single. Look at verse six. But this I say to you by way of concession, not of command, yet I wish that all men were even as I myself am. However, each man has his own gift from God, one in this manner and the other in that. But I say to the unmarried and to the widows that it is good for you, them to, to, if they remain even as I. But if they do not have self-control, let them marry. For it is better to marry than to burn. The concessions that Paul is referring to in verse 6, I believe, looks forward to what he says and not back to what he's already communicated. See, Paul has given guidance in regards to marriage that is in alignment with God's design and purpose. But now he's going to turn to what it means to be single, and he's real honest about his bias. <laughs> he says, I would prefer that you remain single. In his mind, that's better. That's as I am, as Paul is. But when he's saying that, he's saying it not as a command, as if somehow being single makes you more spiritual. <laughs> Everybody's not He's not telling everybody to do what he's doing because it's better in some way. It's it's a concession, not a command. Instead, what he's trying to communicate is a very important point, and it is this Being single and being married are both equally valuable gifts from God. Being single does not make you a second class citizen, you're gifted by God in a different way, equally fulfilled. Because here's the deal. (laughs) God never intended for our hearts to be satisfied within a relationship with another person outside of our relationship with Him. Marriage doesn't fix what's missing. Nor does being single make you more spiritual. Because in the absence of a relationship with Christ, marriage will be unfulfilling. And being single will be depressing. You may remember when we did the marriage or family conference in the uh, fall, the illustration that I gave with the love jug. Y'all remember that? Is a big pitcher filled with water, and I had several glasses on a table representing important relationships. The love jug is the love in your heart. Okay, and you're going to pour your love into these relationships. It may be your spouse, maybe your kids, maybe your friends, maybe your job, maybe your hobbies. Any list of things that you're going to pour yourself into. And, and as you do that, eventually the jug's going to be empty. It's a limited supply that you give to those relationships that are important to you. The problem is, if we are not filled up in Christ, then we start looking for others to meet needs in our life that they were never designed to fill. It becomes relationships of codependency where I'll fill you up if you fill me up. I'll do this for you if you do this for me. It's a codependency so that when they don't hold up their end of the bargain, you become angry, bitter, disillusioned. But you're expecting them to fulfill something that God never intended. If you are not being filled up with Christ, you don't have anything to offer. And that's where that love ultimately has to come from. It's true in marriage, and it's true in being single. Uh, Terry and I, a few years ago, celebrated uh, 20 years of marriage, and we went to uh, Glen Erie, which is the Navigator's uh, property in Colorado Springs. It was a marriage uh, conference, uh, weekend getaway. It was a great time. Really enjoyed that together. And so they kind of spoke to us about marriage and and just helped us kind of revisit some of the principles that we needed to be, firmly committed to and so during one of the sessions they said hey go out together and just spend some time with each other and find something in nature that represents a key point about what we've talked about this week so you'll notice this rock is kind of in the shape of a triangle right because one of the things that they talked about is that a husband and wife as they grow closer to their relationship with the Lord they automatically go closer in their relationship with one another it's that relationship on the Lord as their focus and, and very fulfillment that draws them in their hearts towards each other. Because if one starts moving the other stays, they get farther, not closer. Or, or if they're not growing closer to Christ at all, they're not going to grow closer to each other. It's only by virtue of this relationship, this common desire to go cro- closer to Christ, that they then go, grow closer to each other. You see, that relationship has to be wo- ultimately fulfills the deepest needs of your heart. It's true in marriage, and it's true in being single as well. It's what gives value and purpose to being single. It's a gift of equal goodness according to God's grace. And as you will see as we go on in this same chapter, Paul's going to take some time to expound on the advantages that he sees in being single like himself. Some of the purposes that God uses in the life of somebody. He's trying to make the point that, that being single and being married are both statuses in, in God's economy that are equally fulfilling. That if you're single, you're not missing something that's being gained in marriage. And in marriage, you're not gaining something that's missing in, in being single. They are of great value in God's eyes, equally gifts. that's what he says look again at verse 8 but I say to the unmarried and to the widows that it is good for them if they remain even as I he's saying if unmarried embrace being single as a gift from God because here's why listen closely you are complete in Christ you are not lacking anything You're not a second-class citizen. But you're given equal value and purpose in God's eyes. So be filled up with all the fullness of God. And don't look for marriage to do that for you when it was never intended to accomplish that in the first place. And then in verse 9, he makes an interesting statement. He says, But if they do not have self-control, let them marry, for it is better to marry than to burn. Now, Let me be clear. He is not saying, if you're burning this lust, then it's better to get married. That is unbiblical, and it is absolutely not true. It is not a cure. That's an issue of your heart, and marriage is not going to solve it. So that's not what Paul is communicating. Think about what he's saying in the context of what the Corinthians have proposed. They have looked and said that it's not good for any man to touch any woman under any conditions. But Paul's saying abstinence is not proof of some superior faith. Instead, sexual intimacy is a gift of God. It's not dirty and vile. Within the design, it's beautiful and good and right. So if you have an affection towards someone that is a a God-honoring love, then don't look at marriage as something that is something you do, but you you should avoid at all costs. No, it's great value and purpose. You see, lust is ultimately something that you desire that's outside of God's design. It could be money. It could be power. It could be sexual intimacy. Any one of those things are not bad in and of themselves unless you take them and uh, try to accomplish them outside of God's design using them for your own selfish gain instead of God's good and perfect purposes. So he's saying both being single and being married are gifts from God and are filled with His goodness as long as He remains your first love. That's the key. As long as He is your first love, then you can find equal, satisfying fulfillment In either way, God has called you and gifted you. So when we finish up this morning, I I want us to take some time to think about something. Because we often spend a lot of time on marriage, and we should. Because if there's any area where we see the enemy gaining ground in our world today, it's marriage. Right? But I think sometimes we do that um, at risk of minimizing the value of being single. And I know that there are several in our church who have that status. Sometimes our conversations with people who are single uh, betray our true feelings about uh, somebody who's single. We say things like, oh, you're not married yet? Then you must be really picky. As if we're telling them, hey, if you would just broaden your uh, ideas a little bit, you would give God some room to work and maybe he could do something for you. Give me a break. Or if you're single, you can commit yourself wholeheartedly to the Lord's work. Now, there's some truth to that, but let's make sure that we're not saying that being single means you're an emotional martyr and that somehow being married gets in the way of truly obeying God. Or another one is, you know, God would bring you the right person as soon as you're satisfied with Him, as if God is making a deal with us that contentment must precede blessing. If that's true, we're all in trouble. Right? So we need to be careful that when we care for those who are a part of our body who are single, that we don't look at it as someone who's deprived, someone who's not fully formed until they're married, because that could not be further from the truth. I love a a quote that I found of a woman who meditated on this passage that we looked at this morning and I want to tell you that when I read her summary I said that's it she's got it And listen to what she has to say she says I'm not single because I'm too spiritually unstable to possibly deserve a husband nor because I'm too spiritually mature to need one I am single because God is so abundantly good to me because this is his best for me and to that Paul would say amen Absolutely true. But I think as we think through this, it does magnify the importance of what it means to be a church family. You see, there's a reason that when God describes who we are as a church body, he calls us a family of God. And one of the reasons I think that's important is because those who are single need to understand that if the church is doing its job, they're not missing brothers and sisters, mothers and fathers. In fact, Paul himself, who was single, says multiple times about the children that he has in the faith because of having led them to Christ and seeing them grow in their relationship with the Lord. And he says, there is no greater joy than when I see my children walking in faith. Actually, that was John, but Paul would agree. (laughs) But the idea here is... When we think about being a community, we need to understand that there is great value in how we relate to one another as brothers and sisters in Christ. We need to have spiritual fathers and mothers. We need to have spiritual children that we are pouring our lives into. And we have to be careful if we're married or have a family that we don't idolize those things so that we invest ourselves in those at the expense of everybody else. Paul's going to speak very clearly in chapter 12 of This same letter about the body of Christ, how each member was called into a body just as God intended, that he equips each one of us individually with a manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. In other words, we were built to live in a community of believers as brothers and sisters in Christ to bring fulfillment in whatever status we have relationally, whether married or single or whatever the case may be. We're all intended to love one another within the body. But in the end, I believe this is the most important truth that undergirds everything that Paul says in our passage. And it is this, that there is no status, whether married or single, that will ever satisfy your soul. Because a relationship with Jesus Christ is, is the only soul-satisfying relationship that exists. It goes back to chapter 6, verse 17, when he says, But the one who joins himself to the Lord is one spirit with him. His indwelling spirit empowers you. His word guides you. His saints encourage you. You are complete in him alone. And only because of that and through that can all these relationships be everything God created them to be. Each equally valuable, each equally full of his goodness and purpose when they're in his design. See, our world has corrupted the design of marriage and sexual intimacy. It has, I believe, diminished the importance of being single But following God's design redeems them both. It shows the the value and goodness built into both, being married and being single. So what God has joined together, may we not do anything to separate or to do anything outside of that design because His goodness is built into it. And ultimately, our lives are completely fulfilled in Him. In fact, let me just read in closing this passage you're familiar with, but listen to it in the context of what we just talked about this morning. Ephesians chapter 3, verse 20. Now to him who is able to do exceedingly abundantly beyond anything that we can ask or imagine because of the power that works within us. To him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. That's where life is found. Let's pray. Father, I'm grateful that as we look at your word, that uh, there are no subjects that are off limits, (laughs) that you speak into every one of them. And in them, you express the very goodness of your design, the very purpose of what you intended. And when we live within that, we are filled up with all the fullness of Christ. Because we don't depend on any of these relationships to be the answer to our needs because our needs are ultimately found alone in you. But when that's true, we can experience everything that you intended in the beauty of marriage. Covenant love. Belonging permanently, completely, and exclusively to one person for a lifetime. And we look to you and your love for us As the example of the love that we are to have for one another. So may we be faithful to that. And if you've gifted us in a way that that we're single. That we would see that uh, status as equally as valuable. As equally fulfilling and fulfilled with your goodness. And that we would find contentment in our relationship with you. And lived out in our relationships with one another as brothers and sisters in Christ. We are a family knit together. Empowered by your spirit, guided by your word, encouraged by your saints. And may we live within the goodness of that design faithfully even more as the day draws near. We pray this in the name of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.